this is going off track in studio with Brad and Jonah. Um, I keep going into this weird German thing. You do this yeah. monotone going off track. How am I supposed to I'm say I'm a it? German robot. How am I supposed to say it? Like, All Germans are robots. You're the, the, <clears throat> hey, it's going off track. Okay, here's the thing. I, okay, I, <laughs> all right. I pronounce things weirdly, and I've been told this uh, by my wife and, and by now professionals. Uh, I say, okay, what do you call the thing you open up to get the rain off you? An umbrella? Right, because I say, I say umbrella. And I've been told that I pronounce the um at the beginning. Perhaps because you call it umbrella, but you're not really sure if that's the right word. <laughs> um, umbrella? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, and I, and I did this, um, I did this voiceover gig, uh, that, uh, I'll tell everyone about later. But it's, uh, I had to say the word uh, candidates, and I've always said candidates. And candidate. Can, you're a candidate? Yeah. But so this guy was like, no, no, it's candidates. And I went, is it? I, okay. That's interesting. Sorry. That's actually a hard word for me to spell, candidates, for some reason. I'm a pretty good speller, but that word always, like, aut- like the autocorrect is so off, it doesn't even know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, auto- I'm like, am I that? C-A-N, I know. But I'm convinced autocorrect is actually just an Indian burial ground on the internet, you know, on your cell service. Because I tried to type those guys today, and it just autocorrect <laughs> made those guys into thieves. <laughs> and I don't understand, but then I was kind of like, maybe I should just send it this way. That's kind of funny. Maybe your autocorrect has, like, its own AI that it's decided what you should be saying. I've, I've tried to write sir on autocorrect, and it switches to air. But it's <laughs> grammatically correct, so I don't know what it thinks is happening, probably because it's a machine. You should tell it to duck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, welcome to Going Off Track. Uh, today's guest is Mr. Matt Rabano. You know of Matt from Taking Back Sunday fame. He was in that band for seven years through some great records. And also he is now the bass player, touring bass player for the All-American Rejects. Matt does improv. Matt's a great guy. And I like him so much, I showed up a half hour late to the interview. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> Sadly, we cut out the 20 minutes where we talked about blanching kale, um, but maybe that will be available as bonus footage at some point, <laughs> yeah. because it was super interesting. And you should all know how to do it. You should all know how to do it. Why would you even, I don't even know what blanching means. Take the color out of? No, it's, I think it's like getting it wet. Go on. No, it's just to cook it lightly. Like without, cook it lightly? Without overcooking it. Yeah, he bl- he was a Blanche master. I didn't, I've never done There's it. There's a thing called a Blanche master. <laughs> I'm so sad we cut that out. <laughs> I just made up that term. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we talked, we talked about a lot of stuff besides, besides eating healthy. Um, and Matt is an incredible bass player. He's actually amazing. Yeah, he's, he's like legit amazing. Yeah, like and not like amazing for being in a punk band. No, like he like can. A, he's one of those dudes that, um, and we didn't talk about this, but I know he's actually a fan of Mike Gordon from Fish. So go ahead and judge as you will, <laughs> based on that. Uh, Matt's a good dude, and um, you guys said some very nice things about me when I wasn't here. Oh yeah, very kind. I forgot of you. about that. So here, let's listen to my accolades, and then Matt Rabano. Hey everyone, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah. Um, Steve, this is Steven. <laughs> oh wait, Steven's not here. Hey Steven. Hey Steven. Uh, Steven will be here shortly. He's uh, he's on his way. Um, 
And today we're joined by Matt Rubano, who you may know from uh, Taking Back Sunday, the All-American Rejects. Hello. The Electric Company. <laughs> what else? I'm covering Steven's ass for years now. That's true. Fuse, VJ. God, I get tired of hosting this guy's shows without him. Yeah, Stephen would not show up, and then that's how you got the <laughs> that's, gig, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Basically, like, yeah, I don't have an agent. I just uh, call Stephen's agent whenever he's not available, and I'm like, yo, man, give me that. I'll do that. I'll do that for free. And then I come in. Well, the cool thing about Stephen, um, and he'll hear this, I guess, eventually, is <laughs> Stephen got me a job writing his show I'd never written for TV. Right. Stephen got you a job as a VJ, which I'm guessing you hadn't done before. No, no. Nowhere else. So I don't know what that says about him. Yeah, he's a connector. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. It I was feel so- like we're both staring at this empty chair. <laughs> we totally are both motioning toward the chair as if something's <laughs> going to happen. Um, yeah, he, that was, and that was like a weird experience. That was a really like one of those things where I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm sitting on the set of his show and like there's, you know, all these people around and there's like, all the bits that we're doing and everything and i was like holy shit what have i what have i jumped into but it was really fun to do and then yeah kind of you know kind of like opened a little door over there to do a bunch of other things which uh which were all really fun and there's so there were so many great people working over at fuse during that time and and still today um but yeah thanks to steven for going away a lot i guess during that time (laughs) how long did you do that that vj gig for uh, I did some, I did like a week of his show, um, of the rock show. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. I think I wrote those shows. You very well may yes. have. Um, and then when he was doing um, like the sort of like round table discussion show, I did that a bunch of times, but that was with him, of course. And then I started doing like countdowns. Countdowns were ultimately the least fun. Yeah. Um, but because at the time I didn't really know how to make them fun. There was a lot of room to like do anything I wanted as long as I basically said this next video is, you know, Creed or whatever. Um, but I, and I was kind of like, you know, glued to the prompter and like awkward body language and stuff like that. But it was something that I kind of uh, wish I could go back and do again because I would freak it. <laughs> I'd just be super weird. And the producers were all always like laid back about it. They were just like, all you basically have to do, they were like, <clears throat> show me the prompt. Like, but basically you just need to say the band's name and the song's name and whether or not it's like gone up or down on the countdown. Everything else is up to you. And I was like, this job rules. <laughs> and so I would, and a lot of that was while we were making um, New Again, the TBS record was being recorded in New York. So I was like doing that in the morning and then going down to David Kahn's studio in the West Village and doing that for the rest of the day. So it was kind of a, a really fun and crazy time during That's that. That's amazing. Was yeah. it, because I feel like when I was would watch Stephen host stuff, it looks so hard. Like the timing and like you have to, even when I've been a, go, a guest on Fuse, like remember to do this, don't say this. Like did you feel like it was a different, I mean obviously you play on stage a lot, but I yeah. feel like when you have your bass, for some reason I feel like it's more vulnerable when it's just you and your voice. Oh, absolutely. It, well, the interesting thing was up until that point, I had, you know, been, a, you know, was a musician and and had been in a band for a long time and had been through interviews and all that sort of stuff. And I ultimately don't mind that. I, a lot of artists are kind of like, can bring a pretty, 
shitty vibe to an interview. They can be really tight-lipped or like cop an attitude about the way questions are formed or if they don't like what the questions are about and, and every other thing. When ultimately you're being there to be interviewed, which is like this total ego suck to begin with, you know, to come into an interview with a bad attitude is really strange to me. So I had only been on that side. Then when I, like, when I was doing countdowns or, or any of that stuff and had to interview a band, I remember interviewing uh, Rise Against and it was like, we had met once or twice before, but all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I'm like that douche that bands are always like oh fuck this guy like you know what i mean like sometimes you get interviewed and the guy comes in he's like hey guys how you doing? he's like he's like a jerk you know right. he's trying to be really um you know personable and likable and i'm just like you but you're like no dude you're you're not you're gonna interview you know taylor dane after this or something right right and all of a sudden i was like oh no how i'm that guy now how do i not be like that and the first few times it was pretty rough because particularly with rice against i remember them just like two and three word answers to questions and i was like all right i know it's early in the morning and stuff guys but you are on tv so that's cool right and it was really um it was really like it was really eye-opening for me because then i realized like the two-way street of that thing and ultimately what you're there for i mean you know at that point it helps to remember the millions of people that dream about getting to that point even if it is driven by some sort of like ego or fantasy about what being an artist or a band is like, it's a pretty awesome thing if your art or your music gets you to the point where people are asking you questions about it. You have to be pretty humbled by that. And that's why I think like humility is the best thing to bring to an interview instead of like it's early or we have sound check in two right, hours right. or, you know, this sucks or whatever. Uh, but yeah, Steven does it effortlessly it does help that he's an encyclopedia of music yes and it does help that he's um likable really likable i remember meeting him the very first time and i was like I, do i know this i feel like i know him do i know him uh and then over the years it just was you know we became friends and worked together a bunch so and he's not here right he's now not here. <laughs> um so let's talk about let's talk about bass playing sure and specifically what i want to talk about with you is um you are a real musician in the sense that I feel like you somehow ended up in a scene where a lot of people can't read music. Not necessarily are bad musicians, but it's a different world that yeah. I feel like than that Berkeley kind of world. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel like how you ended up there? What's your thoughts on that? Because I feel like I would just be like, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I will... <sighs> Man, that's like a thing that as a younger man um, creeps out from time to time. And it's it's total jerk behavior. Um, and it can be real subtle. It's never I would never say that. But sometimes you don't have to say that. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And, and it's ultimately like not about music at all. It comes down to like ego and respecting people and stuff like that. Um, and it's good to, to not do that because ultimately if you are trained or if you do have some sort of like ability to play or write music um it's almost like it's a high school athletic thing to be like i'm looking down at you from my ivory tower of ability so that's totally um i think that's natural though i mean like i yeah, think but it's, it's good p- to it doesn't it it, it, but... what it ultimately did was it made getting along with other people whose ideas 
and, ab- and abilities are, were still valid, it made it hard to communicate, you know, and I would, you know, it, and purely about communicating. It never really had anything to do with music. Certainly being in tune and singing in tune and playing with good time are all things that are important to any band, you know, yeah, yeah, yeahs care about that. Um, but like, you know, those things aren't, uh, you know, those are things to be worked out with in a group setting with, with chemistry and, and respect. And, you know, if you are, if, if someone does have like, um, like, a, a better handle on something, you should ultimately share it with the people you're playing with. But, but, uh, your question, you know, I started out that way. I started out like playing in the, in my basement with my friends and was like, found the bass much the same way Mike Watt or people like, like, I guess exactly like Mike Watt did where he was like his buddy, his best friend was a guitar player and his brother was a drummer. So you're like odd man out and you want to hang. And then it was, and, and also at the time we were listening to all of the late eighties and early nineties alternative, what they called alternative rock bands then that all had these really prominent bass players like like Mike Watt and Flea and Eric Avery and Norwood from Fishbone, um, obviously Les Claypool, and, you know, the list kind of goes on. Really, all of the, like, first Lollapalooza generation of bands and, and those guys all had people doing really atypical things. The bass was way up in the front, and it was almost like the same couple of weeks that I had heard, like, Nothing Shocking and Mother's Milk and truth and soul was like, Hey dude, you should get a bass. And I was like, you know, I really didn't have a lot of music training. So the bass was just another guitar to me. I didn't really know that they were different. I didn't even see that one was bigger or whatever. Um, and then I got one and started playing with, um, Dave O'Connell and Mark O'Connell from taking back Sunday, which was really, you know, Mark was like nine or eight really? or something. I didn't know that. Yeah. Those were the first people that I ever played music in wow, a, in a rock band crazy. setting with. Yeah. Um, and Mark was like, you know, Dave was a really good guitar player at that age and, and was really interested in the blues and Eric Clapton and Robert Johnson and stuff. And at the same, and all of that alternative music that we were checking out. And Mark had already been play, like remarkably had already been playing drums for a while and was like pretty good for a little dude who still was kind of like too young to hang out with us. So you know, how, how old are you at this point? Uh, I was in either my sophomore or junior year of high school, probably my sophomore year of high school. Okay. Probably like 16 or 17. And, um, so we started playing and there were a bunch of guys around and Long Island was like a super fertile music scene. Like, you know, there are not at that time, there were like guitar shops every, in every town, more than one. And there were like an inordinate amount of rehearsal spaces around, which I remember, which now I look back and realize that that was really key. That like, you know, in addition to the fact that everyone's parents usually had a basement or a garage or something, but like there was this, there was this like community that made it, that made you believe that like, oh, I should be in a, I could be in a band, I should be performing. You know, there were clubs that had underage nights and all that sort of stuff. And there'd be like eight bands playing from high schools all over Long Island. My high school had like five bands in it, in my class, in my grade with no overlapping members. That's in a high, in one high school. That's like, you know, that's like a small town usually doesn't have that many bands. 
So um, it was really, and I won't go so far as to say it was encouraging. It was encouraging in and of itself, but the people weren't always. Um, so I I got into playing that way, and uh, and you know playing covers and and writing our first crappy songs back then, and then um, as you know one by one everyone sort of disappears to college and and finds their own way. I got really interested in all of music because when I realized what I was listening, I could play what I, what I was listening to and that it wasn't limited to Jane's addiction. And then I heard like Miles Davis and, uh, Bach and all everything, anything I could get my ears on. I got really interested in jazz and, um, all this different world music and stuff. I started, uh, you know, setting my sights on like trying to do something with it. And my, uh, one of my other really close friends, uh, Jamie Siegel, is a producer and an engineer. Um, he was going to Berkeley for production and engineering, uh, which, and then I remember visiting him at Berkeley when I was still in high school. And it was like, you know, this, it was like the professor X, it was like the X-Men mansion. Yes. It's like you get there and you're just like, everyone is like bouncing off the walls playing alto saxophone and vibraphone and crazy electric bass players and guys that were like a year or two older than me that were playing like they were in their 40s and you know gr- unbelievable ability and and music understanding and everyone it was just like a place where everyone's interested in the same thing everyone is interested in jazz too i did a five-week summer guitar thing oh when really I was 17 oh cool so yeah. you, you know that i'm talking about yeah, then, like the, the what it's like there like the apollo sunshine guy yeah yeah all these dudes i'd meet up with later but yeah like i felt like everyone was like everyone either had like the john petrucci like dream theater <laughs> guitar yeah. with those weird picassos yeah or was just like jazz jazz jazz. yeah there's a there's a scene there's there's like a you know there's like a little scene of niche groups that are there's a very anti-jazz constituency there okay and uh and now i would imagine with you know producing being quote-unquote producing being what it's become everyone there probably is a instrumentalist and then slash producer because you have a laptop yeah or or you know or you can you know do some do some beats or something um but yeah and i I went there and i I loved every second of it i was it was probably the socially most um paralyzed point of my life why is that well it's funny when you get there there's so many people to play with and there's all these great teachers to learn from and all the facilities and means you could ever want to practice and write and learn other instruments and expand your ability um but you know there's that you don't if you're like i was kind of i wouldn't go so far as to say i was like awkward but like when you go to college as an 18 year old kid for whatever it's for it's a little weird at first you're gone you're away from home and i was excited about it but um the social aspect of playing music is important you know because ultimately it's not like 4,000 um, mercenaries all trying to play together. It's it's a communal thing. It's a, it's a social thing. It's a communic- communicative thing, especially when you go like all the way back to the roots of like playing music, like what it is about. You're not supposed to um, alienate people. You're supposed to get along and communicate and make something. So I was very, I, I, I was very intent on like, figuring out where i stood when i got there and when i found out where that was i was like 
devastated because I was like, holy hell, I have so much work to do. And um, I remember seeking, I remember being at a party at Jamie's apartment, uh, my friend Jamie Siegel, and I remember asking around like the most arrogant little shithead. I was really stupid then. Um, You know to Tritone Substitution No, I was was asking people who the best electric bass player in school was. (laughs) I was like, who's the best (laughs) bass player here? And they were like, what? <laughs> and I was asking, like, you know, at the time I was 18, and a lot of the, you know, Jamie's like two years older than me. So, right, was, right. you know, I was talking to like 20 year olds and 21 year olds. And at that point, if you're 21, an 18 year old is like a complete moron. You just don't even speak the same language. So I was asking people, and, uh, and I, it was funny because I got uh, the same answer from a lot of people, which was this guy, Steve Jenkins, who's a really dear friend of mine and an incredible bass player. So I, I was like, where does he live? <laughs> and I went to his dorm room. No they to- I swear, dude, this is a true story. Steve can corroborate all of this. And uh, they, I asked where he lived, and I, and I went to his dorm room, which was actually in the same building as mine. And it was hilarious. I got to his door, and I think he lived in room 636, and the three had fallen, had been stolen, or he, for all I know, he took it off, and it was changed to, he drew a six in there. So I was like, you know, it was like ominous. When I walked up to the door, I was like, wait, I might be, whose door am I knocking on right now? And inside, it sounded like there was like a 400-pound bumblebee, like tearing the place to pieces. And I knocked on the door, and he answered the door. And I was like, are you Steve Jenkins? He's like, yeah. And I was like, and I just introduced myself. And I don't even remember what I said, because I don't know why anyone would have let me in. But we kind of became instantly friends. And he was so unbelievably talented that he was, like, you know, barely participating in school anymore. He was just practicing and writing and stuff. So, uh, and I even to this day still have, like, a good 15 years of practicing if I want to play like Steve um but but it was inspiring and it was really great and he i'm still you know we're still close friends today uh so i went through the whole berkeley thing i I didn't graduate i didn't stay for i stayed for about three semesters and then i went back to new york it's a really expensive school and i uh had a little scholarship but not enough to get through a whole four years besides the fact that if you're there to play an instrument at a certain point you're just like all right i don't it's like being at art school you you don't need, you know, unless they're, te- they can't teach you creativity. Right. So you have to leave and go out to the world. I moved back to New York and a bunch of different things started getting recording sessions and performing all kinds of gigs. And, um, yeah, then in a weird twist of fate, again, I had, you know, ended up playing in a band with Mark. Mark was the one to call me from Taking Back Sunday. And so when I was in that world again, it was, really i don't want to go so far as to say the opposite but it was not what i had been studying and working and practicing for and even at that time i was playing a lot of like jazz and instrumental music and touring with different people so being in this like rowdy you know punk band that was like very performance performance above all else you know what i mean like kill the show to death and feed off of an incredible audience that they had at that at that time was like bringing it back to the high school sort of era for me or or what I wanted then which was to be in a band and play shows that was like all anyone wanted to do <clears throat> so i went from like you know uh, uh, quote unquote auditioning for TBS in, in Mark's basement where i had played before right and had been it was ultimately like a hey, hey. we're cheering for Steven Smith Steven Smith is here. I'm going to start that whole story again. You should. You should. It's, 
this is this has been a long and very interesting story. Damn it! Start over immediately. You, you might you, you know can it. listen. You can listen yeah. back to it. Yay. What's up, man? How are you? Oh, What's God. up, dude? Looking good. Yay. I have to say, I run for no one. But you ran today. But I ran for Matt Ravano. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like to hear. Thank you. A thousand apologies. No, don't sweat it. You There's look great. No it's good to see you. No good reason. It is hey, good to you see know. you too. Yeah, it's man. Fantastic to see you. I can't remember the last time. Uh, yeah. Let's not try because we're just going to sound like old guys. Oh, God. I think I saw you at the skate and surf. Yeah, back in the day, <laughs> Ashbury Park. But please, um, I interrupted. So basically, what I was saying to Jonah was like after being at school. And coming back to New York and I had done some, you know, I'd done like the Lauryn Hill record and played on all these like hip hop sessions and R&B sessions and was like playing the occasional $80 straight ahead jazz gig to eat. Um, You know, and and Mark, who was Mark and his older brother, Dave, Mark O'Connell and Dave O'Connell were the first people I really ever played music with ever, you know, when I first got a bass guitar it was with dave o'connell at sam ash on long island and carl place and it was so i could hang with them i was saying to jonah it was almost identical to mike watt picking up the bass where he was like i want to d boone's my buddy and i want to hang out and they were like well you need to play the bass then and that was really what happened and and at the time it was fitting because we were listening to the peppers and fishbone and jane's addiction and uh, of course firehose and the minutemen and even fugaz like bands that all had prominent interesting atypical bass players les claypool and chris kirkwood and mike watts specifically yeah watching him play i watched him play punk rock karaoke yeah and the person would get up and and suggest the song and eric melvin or um, greg hessen would be like okay and they start adjusting their music and mike wouldn't move yeah stand yeah then the song would start and you'd yeah, picking away. There's there's very few people that can make the bass jump off a record the way Mike does, and it's not about sound or recording or his equipment or instrument. It's about his hands and his mind. You know, his approach to playing and and really, you know, where he puts the where he puts the damn notes and and who he's playing with he has a mike has mike taught me something um you know not personally but inadvertently from listening to him and studying his stuff like that the most important thing is the setup is who you're playing with and how you're playing together if you are like you know the lead rabbit and you're trying to show off that sucks but if you have like love and respect for who you're playing with and you work out your music in a way that it's like everyone doing things together be it complimentary or everyone going off at the same time it's about the setup it's about playing with the drummer and supporting the rest of the band and so on and so forth and like that was something that i've heard him say that he doesn't think younger musicians get that but ultimately that was the main thing i got from him that was like the i was like oh this is you know, my ears like lit up when I heard him talk about stuff like that because I was like, he's totally right. Because how could you play in Firehose without caring about George, like without like listening to what's going on with each of these guys? Because they are playing these like puzzle pieces kind of things. Yeah, that makes it easier or harder because you said you did a lot of studio stuff, right? Yeah, at, in it, both at Berkeley, you know, in a school setting, and then when I moved back to New York, I mean, there was still a really healthy not only like jingle and commercial scene where you could make a few bucks playing on cat food and cat litter commercials, which I've done. <laughs> I'm frowning right now as I say that. Um, frowning, and that's like, a badge of honor. Yeah. 
and and like and records you know the hit factory was open all these studios were still around there a lot of them have closed or moved or uh, have you been to the hit factory i have not it's crazy it's now a gibson showroom yeah and they have this sound room that's a boardroom but it's it's quieter than here yeah like you shut the door and your ears ring yeah really which means your ears would be That was trumpeting. a scary place to walk into back in the day. I mean, it was literally every square inch of hallway is covered in platinum and diamond records. I mean, it was a crazy place to go and record music. Um, How'd you get involved in all that? How, who, just from Berkeley, like word spread? Yeah, I mean, uh, my friend Jamie Siegel, who I've talked about a little bit before you got here, um, was a, also a guitar player, and I was in bands with him in high school as well after, uh, after I was playing with Dave and Mark. And he was, he went to school for production and engineering. And as we all, as the whole sort of like Berkeley thing ebbs and flows to and from Boston, most of the people I know, even today, my closest friends, I met up there. And, uh, and everybody comes back to New York or goes to Nashville or LA or whatever. And you sort of, uh, you know, the same way, I guess, a bunch of law students go to a city and all start working at front. You know what I mean? It's like a, it was like a migratory thing where we were all just here and everyone had jobs and at jingle houses or studios. And Jamie, though, was the guy who, you know, we were really close friends. And he, um, I like to think, likes me as a person as much as a bass player. And that time, and then when opportunities came up, like I remember him calling me. I was working at a pizza place in Rockville Center and or an Italian restaurant in Rockville Center on Long Island and kind of back from school and trying to figure my shit out and wasn't really sure what I was doing. And, uh, I got, I think I had a pager. I think it wasn't, I was like, I got a text. I was like, no, it wasn't a text. I didn't have a phone then. I think it was a pager. Big time. Yeah. Big time pager man. And I called him back and he was at, uh, Chungking studios, which is down on Varick street. Um, and he was like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to play with Lauren Hill? I was like, what? So do you want to, I'm, I'm recording with Lauren Hill right now and they need a bass player. They've been bringing bass players in. They all suck. You want to come down? He's like, I finally convinced her, you know, cause it was like a weird thing where he had been suggesting to her, you should meet my friend. You should meet my friend. And then one night, I guess she got frustrated enough to just be like, bring your friend down, get your friend. And this is miseducation. Lauren that Hill. was, but yeah, when they were doing the miseducation, like, you know, early tunes on, on that record. And I, I was holding, I remember, I remember the moment I was holding a bowl of, uh, pasta fajol soup in the window of the restaurant i had the phone on my shoulder and he was like you got to come down here right now it was like saturday night at eight o'clock place was packed and i was like waiting tables so i was uh surviving from that I fucking dropped the soup on myself uh which sucked really bad it was an accident of course um and I'm cleaning up the soup and telling him i'll call him back and i go to tell my manager who's this guy larry uh <laughs> larry i gotta i gotta go and he's like, you know, and I wouldn't, I don't want to say I was the star waiter, but I was a good waiter. Losing me on a Saturday night off the floor is bad. It'd be bad. And I was like, Larry, I got to go. And Larry's like, what, what do you mean you got to go? And I was like, and the place is, well, I shouldn't even, I'd have a name the place. I didn't name it you yet. You haven't named it. Okay. So it's a place owned by some rough guys. Okay. I'll leave it at that. And I, <laughs> so I, so I tell Larry, I got to go. And he's like, you can't go. And I was like, well, no, this is like. This is like a life change. This could be a life changing moment for me. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you if I can go, but I'm also telling you that I'm going to go. And he's like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I can't promise you your job will still be here tomorrow. And I was like, well, I, I, I it's an incredible opportunity. I, I got to go. I got to go. And he was like, well, you do what you have to do. And I remember like 
it's like, you know, his, he was a grown man and I was like 20 and I was like unlacing my apron in front of him. Like not angrily, like I was going to throw it on the floor, but I was doing it like, like kind of like a, like a standoff or a showdown where I was like reaching for my gun, undid the apron, took it off, put it down and split. And I went back to my house and I got my base. This all happens in like eight minutes. You know, I'm like dangerously tearing through the roads on sunrise highway in long island and i get my base and i haul ass into the city and i go up there and uh and walk into what was at the time the most you know this terrifying room i'd ever walked into which was like an entire entourage of people um gordon williams who was producing the record and um a whole bunch of people you know people were showing her like artwork for the rec you know it was just like it was how they would, you know, uh, show it in a movie. It was just like, this. that's not real recording sessions. Real recording sessions should be quiet and controlled with people creating and stuff. But this was just like everyone in there and people screaming and yelling and partying and stuff. And I walked in and Jamie like pulled me aside, told me to set up and everything. And I took my bass out and I couldn't even find, I could, didn't even see Lauren in the room. Like I was like, I don't even, is she even here? And, uh, and it turned out she was like standing sort of next to me the whole time. I didn't realize it. And she turned around and I was kind of like, oh my God, she's really, you know, at that time, I mean, and now today, sure. But, um, she's really beautiful. So, and not that I was like, you know, attracted to her or into her, but like when you first look at her, she's got a, this crazy eyes are big and she's really beautiful. She's stunning. I yeah, she, play acoustic one. stunning's the right word. And I was like, hi, I met her. And um, then they, you know, we just started, they put on some, put on like a dat tape of some drums and I just started sort of playing along. I remember like closing my eyes because I was like, the only way I'm going to get through this is if I really concentrate. I closed my eyes. I played for like 45 seconds along to this beat and uh, sort of like, internal monologue was like open your eyes look around make sure see what's going on people might be frowning and uh, and she was like dancing and people were kind of nodding their heads and i was like oh my god and the crazy thing was right before so then we she's like you want to do some want to work on this track and i was like yeah so they pull up uh one of the tunes and right before we're gonna start throwing around ideas for it uh q-tip comes walking in the room like he does yeah and and for me, growing up on Long Island, listening to Tribe Called Quest forever, that was kind of like, <gasps> oh my god! And I like saw him, and he looked at me kind of up and down, and they, he said hello, and then they were, what are you guys doing? We're gonna we're gonna try this bass player out, and he like, I remember he walked right in the room, they say hello, and then he like leans up on the on the console, just like like he's you know a few feet away from me, he's just gonna watch me track and i'm i'm pouring sweat at this point but it went well i mean it was really you know it was fun it went somehow i eked it out and uh and that's how you know so jamie would would you know refer me around and get me gigs in the in the very beginning of coming back to new york until i was sort of piecing it together on my own and then years and years and mark then mark calling me to but you were on like yesterday right yeah, and we were kind of doing that at the exact same time. That was like, that had sort of started right before Mark reached out to me for, for TBS. And we hadn't done any like touring. We'd done a bunch of shows in town and played like, you know, pianos and wherever else. And, you know, we were really excited about that band. It was really fun. Um, 
And when and and when Mark called me, I had never heard of TBS and and knew Mark was in a band, um, and and knew that it was like a real thing, knew that they were like doing well and gigging and touring and stuff. Um, but when he called me, I was just kind of like, "Whoa, Mark O'Connell!" You know, I hadn't heard from him in ten years or something like that. It was like, or not quite ten at that. Yeah, probably like eight or nine years at that point. And um, and he was like, "You got, you know, we need a bass player if you want to come try it out." And I uh, remember going to the no longer in existence Virgin Megastore and buying "Tell All Your Friends" and learning the songs and like going to his house the next morning or afternoon or whatever. And um, as I was saying to Jonah, going down to his basement where I had played all throughout high school and like, and then the meeting the guys and everything. And Fred was already there. Um, And like, you know, re-meeting grown up at that time, Mark O'Connell and like learning the tunes and going down and playing with those guys. So all of a sudden I was like thrust back into, you know, not that they were a high school band, but like, for for purposes of like separating the two kinds of like musical experiences this was punk band this was like let's go crazy and i didn't really get it i mean like i didn't i didn't get it at all i was like cuz everything that they told me about the band when we when we first played together i had to just take it on you know i wasn't in the scene didn't know about the scene at all, really. I wasn't listening to that. Wait, 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 before we move on, yeah. was your Italian job waiting for you when you got back? Yes. The guy totally... <laughs> I've been wanting to know this Yeah, this dude, time. Larry totally let me come back to work. They were like, what happened? And I told him that they were... Inc- they were the funniest thing was all these guys <laughs> being, like, impressed by the Fugees. Right. And they were like, you went, you met the Fugees? And I was like, well, yeah, I recorded with Lauren. And yeah, that's what I did last night. And then, you know, one guy, t- hey, Phil, you, he went to Fuji's last night. <laughs> and that's where you went? And it was all these guys like, you know, sorry, I'm doing like a terrible Italian stereotype. <laughs> but being Italian, I feel I like I'm say, just, Aren't you allowed? Yeah, I'm, I think <laughs> yeah. I have carte blanche. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was crazy. So I did that for another little while until, uh, until something. I don't know. I, I don't remember why I stopped working there, but I did. And I think I moved into, the, into Williamsburg which was or or the east village at the time and uh yeah i still 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 slung pizza for a minute before before music was was full time um but yeah like the tbs thing was weird what scene did, did you subscribe yourself to? Would you say jazz? Well, I mean, I like yeah. when you say you throw out $80 a gig jazz night to eat when I'm like, that's the hardest stuff to play. and, and Yeah, and pays. especially when no one's, when, you know, you're doing it at like the Blue Water Grill and people are like eating dinner and you're like, wait, I went to school to study this music. I love this music. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to like live off of this. And, and that's like a, con- you know, jazz is the, you know, in the cliched way, the music of poverty and all that. But, um, yeah, it was just weird. You know, I had, there would be times when I would have a gig every day and I was still like barely able to pull to get, you know, that might be how good I was. I don't know. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't like in the downbeat readers poll or anything like that, but I was really enjoying what I was doing and was still so young that like my concerns were, were all based on that were all based on what I was playing and who I was playing with and, and enjoying it. Did you go see a lot of jazz? Did you yeah. Go, like, I mean, I Vanguard still do. And... I went the other night to the uh, Jazz Standard to see Dave Holland and Kenny Barron. And uh, yeah, I'm go- I've got my cal- my calendar now that I'm off the road for a couple of months is like filled with 
you know, music, some music lessons that I'm taking, some that I'm giving improv classes and stuff like that, and then going to see as much jazz and, and music, all music really. But, you know, the main thing that I miss out on when I'm on tour is, is seeing that stuff because it's so, uh, you know, centralized around certain cities. You, you know, we got lucky one night on the road where I got to see like Bella Fleck and Marcus Roberts in Minneapolis because they were playing at the hotel we were staying at, across the street from the hotel we were staying at. So like weird things like that'll happen. Um, did you know until? Did you not know until you got there and then freaked out? Yeah, we do like this. You know, when you're on tour, you typically every day you just you know thanks to the iPhone you just pull out maps and search whatever you're interested in. For Mike Kennedy, it's record store. Yes, I um, just went record shopping with him last week. Yeah, he's amazing, I isn't think he? You guys, did you go to the Bass? Uh, yes, with Chris. Yeah. He was like there at some Bass, and I was yeah. like, Matt actually turned me on to that place. Yeah, yeah, we did. I go we all went, the time. Ty and Chris went. And uh, met up with them there. And yeah, I mean, you know, so for Mikey, it's record store. For Nick, for Wheeler, it's Starbucks first, (laughs) um, which I always try to tag along. And, you know, so so you just do that every day. And then we had this day off in Minneapolis and I pulled it out and looked for stuff. And Jazz Club was like right where I was standing. And I was like, where? I turned around. There was beautiful, this beautiful jazz club in Minneapolis called the Dakota, which is really kind of puts New York clubs to shame. I really, I, you know, hesitate to say it, but it's sonically laid out beautifully. It's, it's a beautiful room. Um, they have killing food. Bizarre how good the food is there. And uh, we saw Bella Fleck and Marcus Roberts. Marcus Roberts is, for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, the artistic director at the Jazz at Lincoln Center, works with Wynton Marsalis. Uh. And Marcus is blind. Marcus is a remarkable piano player. Like, remarkable piano player anyway. And when you add the fact that he is uh, sight impaired, it's insane. To watch mm-hmm. him play is insane too. Really? Yeah, well, he does this really amazing thing when he's playing. Like, when he's playing, like, lines, like running melodies... You know, the, the physicality of the instrument speaks for itself, and he just plays. But when he's comping, playing chords around a soloist, you know, with, with spaces in between his attacks, I had a really close seat. I went with Tyson and our keyboard player, Scott Chesick, who played with, plays with the Rejects. And we were so close, and it was really great to watch him feel around. Because when he's running, he's just running. But when he's, like, playing all these chords... You watch his fingers like r- make sure he knows where he is, which he probably isn't even doing that intentionally. That's probably like a response thing that he just does. But it was incredible. So yeah, on a day like that, you get to see some cool music. We were in Europe this summer opening for Blink and we got to see the Berlin Philharmonic on a day off. And uh, we got to see Mozart's Requiem in Barcelona with like an 80-person choir and full orchestra. I imagine another time you wouldn't be talking of such shows. It would be, you know, rock bands talking about, oh, what did you do last night? I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. No, we were... I woke up this morning. Yeah. We got on like this cultural thing on the European tour where we were like every day that we could was like sightseeing or... and, And Scott... Chesek, the keyboard player, like was the guy who started tipping us off to like, you know, when we're in Berlin, the Berlin Philharmonic is playing. We could go see that. And that's like going to see, you know, the Bolshoi or something. It's like you, you want to go, like if you have the opportunity, you go yeah. see the Berlin Philharmonic. And it was summertime and it was beautiful. Oh, it was yeah. insane. Um, I love that. Yeah, man. So, I, I, I you know, music is, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I don't like. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not, I haven't found too much of when I hear it. I'm like, ah, you know, like, Pop country doesn't really sing to me so much. It's just pop, really. It's hard to... 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there is. Uh, if you can, if you can be Australian and throw in a twang and call it a country artist, no offense, yeah. Keith Urban, no you're a great guitar player, <laughs> yeah, an amazing guitar player. From guitar players I've spoken to, are like, yeah, yeah, he's really good, yeah. But to be able to just, you know, say goodbye and then, oh, uh, yeah, hey, you know, <laughs> it's that's, weird. That's I don't think I think that's cheating. Yeah, but that's just me. Yeah, country needs a like a Cobain, yeah, or something. Needs somebody you just to created like my Halloween costume, <laughs> country Kurt Cobain, yeah. Um, country code yeah <laughs> but yeah the tbs thing man was like made like i was like it, it like pulled on something in me when we first played where like i didn't really get it when we were playing in the basement together you know i, I don't remember i don't remember adam singing at all when we when i auditioned i remember him kind of like sitting on the steps and kind of like chilling and like looking at me and Fred didn't like me from the get-go. Nobody really liked me. I think Mark liked me. And, and I, you know, I kind of brought it upon myself because I, I walked in there with my bass, which was at the time and now, like one of my favorite basses is a, oh man, I'm going to say this on a record. Please. Is a six-string bass. There you go. Is dying. Is a six-string bass. five or six? Yeah, no, it's a six-string bass. And it, it doesn't look like a rock band bass. It looks like, you know, it looks like a Ferrari what kind of bass is it? It's actually, um, you know, Tobias guitars and basses. It's Michael Tobias sold Tobias to Gibson, I think, years ago, and then started making these basses out of his place up in Kingston in New York called MTDs, Michael Tobias Designs. And I have one of the first basses that he made um, uh, on the MTD line. I don't know about the first few, but I think the serial number on it is like 22 or wow. something like that. And I... So another terrible thing that I did when I moved back from Berkeley and, and to New York and trying to get my stuff together was that I worked at a collection agency, which is basically calling people that are down on their luck and pulling their last dollars out of them. It's a terrible job, but you could really make a lot of money. It's a commission-based kind of thing. Really? I never knew that. Yeah. It's the most karma. It's the karmically worst thing I think you could do because you know you could justify that these people owe the money but like you know you call these people and you talk to them and you find out why they default on their mortgage or their car payments or their cell phone bill and it's never like i don't know i just i forgot it's always like you know they'll start telling you and then you're like oh god and now i'm gonna ask this person to write a check but i did and uh and and i took all the whatever money i made on that job up until a certain dollar amount and then i quit and I went into the city and I bought this bass, that bass, the six string. And I played that on Lauren's record and a, and a bunch of things. And it, and it was like, you know, for me, it was like, this thing's awesome. Why wouldn't I play this right, right, anywhere? Right. And then I walked in there and those guys, I took it out and they were all just like, what the <laughs> fuck is that? What is that bullshit? And I was like, well, all right, well, you know, but they did want a five string. Sean, I think, before me played a five string. I'm not positive, no, but yeah, I, I think, think he did. Sure, yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, the very beginning, you know, you know how I do the opening thing is like this big wailing low B at first. So, which is the lowest string on a five or six string bass. So I, I did that and it was kind of weird, but I mean, I knew the songs, the songs were fairly, uh, you know, were, were easy to learn. And, um, and you know, I, while the chemistry hadn't maybe lasted, I had played with Mark before. So it was like comfortable for me. And, uh, yeah, we, 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 we played and, um, then, then they were asking me if I would play with them. And, uh, I, re- I, you know, again, like I didn't really, it didn't make sense to me until we had did where we did those first warp shows. We played the Birchill, uh, was our fir- my first show with them. 
and it was a flailing mess, but it was eye-opening for me where I was like, oh my God, this is like a real thing. This is insane. And when I saw Adam perform, it was, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll get behind this guy. This is, this looks awesome. Um, and then, and then when we did those warp shows, we did like the last three shows of warp tour in 2003 or four. I don't remember. Or five, four. Um, four. Yeah. Cause they dropped off and then we came back and mm-hmm. did like Philly, New York and New Jersey. And at that point, you know, my mind was blown. I was just like, could not believe what I was, you know, people were singing before we went on. I was just like, this is, I was like that they're singing the song that we're going to play. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we went out there and, and did it. And then, then, you know, then I did that for a long time because it was, it was cool, man. At that point they wanted to like, as far as writing goes, they really wanted to do anything. They were, you know, everybody wanted to just like keep going forward. It seemed like they weren't, they weren't trying to at that point recreate or, or, propagate like tell all your friends kind how of. soon did you go into writing where you want to be that week wow. i mean we started working on tunes that we had we had we had the 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 bare bones for bonus mosh part two in the first couple of times we played together because wow. that was one of the things was like hey let's work on music and i think fred or eddie had had a some kind of riff or i don't remember who came up with what at this point but and we started work that was the first thing we worked on i think um or maybe another tune called Follow the Format, which never came out anywhere, I don't think. Which was, I think, one of the greatest songs we ever did. Um, even if it's, you know, cliche to say something no one's ever heard was great. But it was a really, <laughs> it was a really unique song. And, and the title, too, was like, you know, the, the band, I guess, had been criticized at that point for the song, for the, the shape, the song format, the song uh, structure, or, or, or something. Hmm. And then we wrote this song that was just like you know kind of non-repeating madness but was really like melody and lyrically driven and had cool stuff well yeah i mean it was like but that was the thing was like what i was interested in doing at that time they were kind of okay with having in the music so while there isn't any you know jazz or crazy weirdness on where you want to be a lot of the ideas that i feel like i contributed to the record were like what I was interested in at the time. You know, there was a lot of like really low subby things on that record. I was using like a low pass filter on stuff like Bonus Mosh with these big massive sl- low end slides in a band that was previously the, you know, Tell All Your Friends sonically is a very, you know, kind of noisy, not very dynamic record. And I, I think they would say the same, you know, certainly the quality of the record. I'm speaking only of the quality of the recordings. Right, 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 right. Um, but yeah, it was, we were able to do a lot of really interesting things and i and i you know it was a cool home to start working on music and and it it pulled me you know it was like a full time you know i remember eddie saying to me you know you're not going to be able to play with other people anymore and i and i interpreted that as like some form of exclusivity and i was like well i mean i know i mean i could do whatever i want right and he was like no no we're going to be like you know it's like this is like a it's going to take all your time and I was like, oh, okay. And then kind of like, we'll see about that. And then I remember the first tour we did with Saves a Day and uh, and um, Monine was like three months long or two and a half months long. And I came back and I couldn't even imagine doing anything else. I was just like exhausted. And then 
then we started working on recording where you want to be in, in Brooklyn. I'm um, curious. Um, I, I, I want to get to the reject stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I'm curious about new again because I feel, you know, we've had, um, we had Adam on, like, mm-hmm. everything. And I feel like those guys have sort of disowned that record in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And I remember I did a cover story on you guys mm-hmm. around that record. And I felt like everyone was really excited about about it at the time and it seemed legitimate excitement to me yeah so i'm curious what's your opinion of that record now well my opinion of that record is still i'm uh, terribly proud of it um and and i agree with i i agree with what you just said and even more so i leading up until my uh the end of my time with those guys that vibe came on stronger and stronger after the and, and i don't know and i i'm not certain that it was totally a music i don't think it was like oh i'm not sure about this music because i remember these like really sort of like emotional and sincere conversations where we would all say that this was the best thing we had ever been a part of and and really writing it too was like we played in the we played we wrote a lot of that music in a room this big. This room is what like four ten, by two. Yeah, this is a <laughs> tiny room, and we had this tiny little rehearsal space in Williamsburg, at, not far from here. And and the guy and some of the guys were sharing an apartment nearby, and I was living in the East Village, and uh, and it was like we were having a really the chemistry was really good and we were doing i mean certainly that music is the furthest out we ever went when it comes to everything melody and time signature and the fozzy's guitar playing is even more atypical than fred's was fred's is fred's is advanced in a very guitaristic way fred is your guitarist's guitarist and and with tunings and voicings and stuff he's he's a wizard and fozzy was like i will never play a power chord ever and so he's trying to do that's like his mandate is like be creative be unique and and do something different and it works really well against eddie who loves to play like really heavy riffy kind of stuff and uh and and my fozzy's also a drummer so he and mark had really like good flow of ideas and stuff um and i remember particularly adam being really excited about everything we were doing we did like a practically an r&b ballad on that on that record we did like really sort of like songwritery songwriter stuff and uh yeah when we finished it recording it was tough we had a couple of bumps in the road recording it but at the end we were all really pleased with it um and over the course of touring i don't know if it was maybe based on a live reaction or on personal things with 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 you know the divide in the band um you know, I remember showing up to one tour and everyone had just sort of had it. Everyone was just kind of like, fuck this record. You know, the the critical response, the sales response, you know, and I don't, you know, those things are nice when they're going your way, but when they're not, I don't change my, I don't lower my flag, I don't take off. So I, I remember feeling that while I was still in the band and it was, uh, I couldn't really put my finger on it and I, and I still don't, not necessarily able to, um, but yeah, that happened. <laughs> I mean, that that did happen. And yeah, I mean, you remember? I remember we're, we were at a lovely vegan restaurant that night, yeah, weren't we? We did that. We did some interviews at a coffee shop, yeah. in East Village. Yeah, that we were at. We had dinner somewhere in in Brooklyn, that I place think, in local. Greenpoint. Yeah. yeah, right by the park. Yeah, and uh, 
Yeah, so I, I, you know, I couldn't say, um, but I, I'm proud of it, man. I mean, you know, there's a lot of cool... We were all really encouraging each other on that record. I remember that in particular when we were writing it. There was a lot of, like, everyone was encouraged. You know, I, the bass solo on Carpathia, believe it or not, not my idea. I didn't even write it. I think Fozzie wrote it. I didn't even come up... I came up with, like, one-third of it. But it was not my idea to do that. It was not anyone's idea to you know, have all these different things going on. It was like a very group-oriented thing. Dude, if you were in my band, I'd be like bass solo every time. <laughs> all right, bits open with the bass solo. Yeah. Matt, do Anastasia again. Just do it again, just yeah. for me. Oh, man, <laughs> it would be rough. We would we would have a hard time getting didn't people you, to come you out. Didn't you co-write Make Damn Sure? Yeah. Yeah, Such that was... a great song. That's like just, as far as just pop rock songs go, it's just yeah. just such a killer tune. Do you guys ever see the um, uh, Intervention you ever see that episode of Intervention where the chick is, the girl is freaking out and she starts singing Make Damn Sure? No way. Oh my God. If you want to have your mind blown, I don't know the episode number or anything. There's this episode of Intervention. I think it's Intervention. Is she it's going one of those through shows. withdrawal or something? Or? She's at the point, she's, I believe, at the point that this happens. So this is a girl who obviously has a significant mental issue um, and is not in a good environment to be cared for. She like lives at home. Uh, maybe her family members are trying to look after her. I think she's doing some kind of crazy drugs also. But she's like, you know, these shows are so, they like exploit people so badly. But like this girl is like having delusions of grandeur. She's like considers herself a deity. She's writing like these really lengthy equations on the walls of her bedroom. And then the next moment, like freaking out and destroying the place and tearing her clothes off and cutting her hair. Just all this crazy stuff is happening. She's a total like so ripe for intervention that you know whoever casts that show or whatever you i don't know if you call that casting but it's got to be the best job ever yeah you find Hi, we have heard stories <laughs> of a member of your family going grade a bonkers yeah Would do you, you guys want to make 27 dollars? yeah exactly so this girl at, at one point is like trying to get i think she's trying to get vodka or some kind of booze and she like runs out of her house and i think she's naked um or or very has very little clothing on and she is like running from the camera crew and her sister's chasing her. I think she has a fist fight with her sister and she's like goes back and forth between like screaming and hollering like a mad woman and then like cracking up laughing and then like pulling her own hair and the last bit of this segment when they're like chasing her down the block when they finally find her like next to a dumpster somewhere she like looks into the camera with these super glazed eyes and she's like I just want to break you down so badly (laughs) and it's like we all saw that I was just you know for me I don't know what that means I mean the royalties must have been huge oh man just when we all saw that we were just like dumbfounded it was like you know it's worse than having your song be on like a hot dog commercial because you're just like oh no this crazy person of all the madness in her mind she picked up on that when she hits bottom yeah that's what that's she equates what, with it totally that's her naked running down the street trying to steal vodka uh, you know avoid her sister who's beating her up what would our songs be yeah <laughs> at that moment when the camera crew finds oh it. man it's funny too because I stole the root motion, some of the root motion from Make Damn Sure from. Uh, I, I mean, I might have been stoned. You're going to have to define root motion because the, the, I'm going the, in a I studied at Berkeley and I don't know what root the, motion is. The movement is. of the bass notes. 
from I was probably stoned at the time, so this could be totally wrong, but from an Aphex Twin track. Uh, I was listening to Aphex Twin one night. I remember I was like still living probably at my mom's, God. And, uh, and I was like listening to this thing and then I picked up my bass and then I went into whatever. We were rehearsing in Manhattan at the time and we started working on that tune. Yeah. It's a good tune. Crazy years. That's a good record too. It's yeah. interesting how the, the, I was talking, maybe we were talking, I was like, Taking Back Sunday is, is, is rife for a book. Yeah, you know, man, it's but for, for a dirt style book of all parties, it would know, be impossible. I mean, there are so many versions of truth in that in in that world. Um, both before I was there, mm-hmm. while I was there, and certainly after I was, uh, you know, let go. So well, it seems that there is a there is with them a, an odd nature of rekindling after a certain amount of time. So. Yeah, and there's a revisionist history thing too, which which you know I don't care to criticize or or judge or condemn any anything really anymore. But I, we I've said that before. I was like, man, if anyone because because you know, and not not to be self critical, but like if the band was had ever been you know bigger in a mainstream sense, we probably would have made you know behind the music by now because it's a crazy story, the whole story. The personal, the stories of the individuals' lives mixed with the band, and how all those things correlate is a really crazy story. Julian, let's do this book. Call me. <laughs> I'll totally do it. Yeah, but you'd have a hard time getting a real. You'd need like you know, you'd need a team of journalists and fact checkers to really uh, get it right. And, and and by get it right, I don't even you know. I'm saying what I mean. Right. You know, what other people mean is going to be different. So I don't know how you really do that when you're writing a story and you've got either conflicting truths or versions of it. Um, and it's ultimately why I really don't talk about it and never have since then, because I don't, I don't think it's just my part. And I don't think understanding my part is going to help understand the whole. And, uh, and ultimately, fans don't really they might care. They might want to know out of the same want to know that you want to see a car accident when you hear screeching brakes. But I just, you know, leave it be. It is that fascinating point of, okay, that's great. And that's interesting. Uh, how'd that song come about? You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, it's, it's like antithetical to the art. Yeah. You know, and It's part of it. It's a part of the evolution. But it really, we used to say years ago, it's like, we really don't care where you were last night or who you're fucking like. Can we just talk about the music? And, sure. And know? and it's a crazy thing that these days you can tweet at or Facebook message, you know, artists that you like, whether or not they see it or respond. But, you know, there was like a, a, a better separation of fan and artist in the mid 90s and before then <laughs> that like was that I, I feel like was healthier for both parties. It's not good to know all that stuff. It doesn't expand your appreciation of what they do. If anything, it makes you criticize them as individuals, which is not the point of appreciating someone's... You know, I know things about friggin', you know, Bukowski and Miles Davis that I kind of... That, 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 that don't help me appreciate their art anymore. I always called it Axel Rosing. It's like, yeah. oh, he beat the shit out of that girl? Fuck, now how do I feel about yeah. Rocket Queen? You yeah. know what I mean? And, and right. you wouldn't even need to know that to know that that's his deal. If you listen to Appetite, you can tell that this is a dude who's kind of a scumbag. Yeah. And 
you know, so be it. But the tunes are the tunes. Yeah. Speaking of celebrities, I learned that you were in oh, the God. American Rejects yeah. when I was in California. Um, I was at my girlfriend's house and we turned on the TV and Matt was sitting with Fran Drescher and the rest <laughs> of the Rejects on like some morning news show. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I love you. you Dude, that like, was the funniest thing, man. We amazing. walked in I there. Like, what? I was like, why is Matt here and everyone and Fran Drescher's talking yeah. and they're like in a green room? Yeah. It was a new band. <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing is when you get to like tell, like LA is LA. Is LA. So when you go in there and, you know, it's a tiny little green room and we had been sitting in there and then we went to do a tune and then we went back to the green room and Fran Drescher is sitting there. And as we walk in, the the look on her face was get the fuck out of my room. Who are you guys? And then the producer is like, Fran, these are, this is the All-American Rejects. And she's like, ah, you know, she does the whole deal. I love you guys. And then they sit down and take a picture. And I was just like, you know, some of the morning show and like late night stuff, the people you encounter and like, uh, you know, like, like that, that two minutes you spent, like, dude, we, I did Leno with Patrick and, Snooky was the guest. So we play the song and Jay comes over and and says hi to Patrick and the rest of the band and Snooky comes over to me to me and she's like you guys look good. <laughs> and I was like thank you and the and it's like you know I had a conversation I don't know, I guess I guess that's a conversation 1 with degree Snooki. of Snooky. Yeah no, man. And Patrick was so frustrated that night because I guess like every time fallout boy had done leno it had always been with a jersey shore cast person like the he did it once with fallout boy and it was paulie d or something and then we did it and with his you know with just patrick and it was snooky he was like oh, i can't get away from this uh which is great but yeah yeah we how got long to, have you been in the rejects now i did the whole um kids in the street touring cycle which I don't a year almost like a full year which started like you know their first rehearsal was days after the last gig that I did with Patrick Stump so it was like you know a whole it was the long it was the longest stretch of touring I've done with very tiny breaks in my whole life it was like 18 months or something of mostly being gone and for some of it I was making home in LA temporarily. Um, and it was, my girlfriend was living out there and it was like, you know, just whirlwind. Uh, I left New York and then went to Tokyo with Patrick and did a whole summer thing with him and then came back to LA and was rehearsing with the rejects. And it was, it was, you know, it was great, man. It was like, you know, and going from something like Patrick's band, which was this really incredible group of, of musicians that I got to pick along with Patrick they're all friends of mine everyone in that band um were were guys that I've played with in various incarnations and groups and stuff and and I knew Patrick you know was really was obvious and clear by just like hanging out with him and listening to the music he was working on like what kind of musicians he wanted to have in the band so doing that whole thing which was like super I really really loved that record uh, and, and all the things that Patrick was doing when he got to like really do that thing, um, I was so happy to be around for it. Because when I met him years ago in TBS and Fall Out Boy toured together, I remember like the moment we met, he was like sitting in their back lounge watching like like drum instructional DVDs or something, and I was like, "Hey, 
He's and we, I was like, you, oh wow, dense chambers. And he's like, yeah, man. And I sit down and we watch it. And then we sort of had this kinship of being like this weird, you know, sort of like muso jazz guys in in punk bands and rock bands. And we always had talked about like, oh, we should do something someday. And it happened, and it was so much fun. Um, and then transitioning to playing with the Rejects, which for me was a lot more singing and uh, harmony singing and and uh, playing bass in a very different way than I had been doing both with TBS and with Patrick, which, you know, when, you, when you're picking up an instrument out of someone's hands. Yeah, that's what I was wondering yeah. about. That's so interesting. Yeah. Just to be next to him playing all these bass lines he's been yeah. playing for years. And, and Ty definitely has like... Ty's thing, um, you know, I don't know about baseline creation because I'm not around. I was never around in the studio. Um, but Ty, Ty has a really strong feel thing. And, and if mine was too clean or too stiff or something, and I'm not that I, you know, I, I got a hell of a lot of feel, man. But, <laughs> but you know, when you're playing somebody else's... about your root control. Yeah, when, you, when you're playing somebody else's music on their instrument... Um, you know, it's important that they like it. And, and we were, we've been good friends for a long time up until that point. And, uh, and getting to do that was really interesting because it was trying to emulate something that I really didn't know until he told me I had it, but you know, it, like when we were doing rehearsal and stuff like that. And, and Nick Wheeler is, is really the, um, the musical whip cracker in that band. He really runs a lot of like rehearsal and, has all you know has the entire record and all of the data and all of the tracks at his fingertips all the time for reference and everything so he knows exactly what you should be playing and singing every single minute of the day and uh he made a joke i remember in an email he sent me when they were sending me the tracks to to learn he was like he would send me the song he would send me the bass track just the soloed bass track like along with drums and a lead vocal so bare that you could pick out every detail of it, which is the best way to learn something. And then he would also type out additional instructions in the email. So it would be like, you know, he. I remember him sending me Move Along and he was like, you know, the rhythm in Move Along sounds like it's straight eighth notes, but it's not. It's one and two E and a three and four and or whatever it is. It's like, yeah. And he would like write it out and he would be like, and then, so he sent me all the tunes and all the emails and the last one had this like funny tag on it where he was like, you know, all of these little details might not seem important, but they are. So try to really nail them. Um, he's like, you know, I might just, we might just be perfectionists or we might be total slave drivers. We'll see. And I was like, oh man, this, because when it's that specific, you really have to, you know, have it down. So but do you dig that when it's that specific? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. From your standpoint? I would always rather play with people that, you know, the, the cool, the great thing about the rejects and certainly with Patrick, I mean, Patrick is like a musical monster in his ability is writing is so prolific and he's so talented. He plays freaking every instrument. There is uh, many instruments. I should say he would get, you know, embarrassed if I said that probably, but Patrick, um, really knows what he wants you to do and also has a huge appreciation for you the individual and what you want to bring to it so his whole thing was like here's what i wrote if you want to make it better or your way do it and then if you did something that he liked he would just go oh go with it go do it do it which was great that's a great environment to work in for a bunch of guys who are used to doing that um and that was for everyone in the band and then with the rejects it was you know they're nick and ty are such like 
really strong songwriters and when they arrange and when they work on that stuff they really do know what they want and everything has a purpose and a point so when a guy is you know it would bump i guess if i wasn't up for it it would be annoying if someone was like oh no the end of four is supposed to be a little bit more staccato i would be you know then you're just like oh fuck off but no it's nice to know when you're getting it right i mean that was like a big that's a big part of what i've done over the years is like working with artists to help their vision come out mm-hmm. and i take as much interest and uh fo- put put as much focus on what i'm doing as ultimately what i'd like them to want from me so when someone's being really specific and critical is where i really thrive because i feel like i can do it and like then i like you know the more more intricate a part gets the more i like can focus on it and, and really make it speak like the bass mechanic, it's like, all right, who do we <laughs> it's need such for this? A... We need this guy. Well, no, seriously, I would say all the time, like, like, it's like, like actors. You know, everybody gets all bummed out. Like, you audition for something and you right. don't get it, and they're like, oh, they fucking hate me. No, they don't hate you. It's that you know, if you've got a very specific model Toyota, yeah, you have to find the right mechanic to fix it. Yeah. And if you're not the right person, they're not going to use you. It's no hard feelings. Yeah, you know what I mean, so you know, people know you can. You are versatile. Yeah, do a lot of different things. Wheeler uh, said the best thing. That kills me about the rejects, man. I love that they're that specific. That's yeah, a great thing. Yeah, because it seems it, like it's a it's a fun time. Tyson, I feel like yeah. you would always think like the bass um, didn't seem like an afterthought, but you're so focused on him singing. Yeah, and, what what, what kind of made him want to shift over? I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. I think I think frontman, you know, f- singing and and performing, and you know there is a big difference. In, I think, the stage show when we're doing, you know, like when he plays on like Swing Swing, it's like the song is so huge for them that, and he's playing bass and I'm drinking water on the side of the stage. It it works, you know. And But I think, you know, even for the first half, he was playing Move Along and then I started playing it and I just remember him like having more fun performing and singing and stuff. They've done that for a while where when they first started touring, he yeah. hand... I'm not uh, the first guy to do this. It was really? the, Yeah, it was... Uh, but it used to be specifically last song. Yeah. He would okay. start the song right. and then I guess the tech would yeah. take over. By the breakdown at the end. Yeah, by the yeah. breakdown. And then he would jump Took in the her. crowd and do his thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Wheeler, I'll never forget Nick said to me, it's he's like he was like you took the easiest instrument and you make it as hard as you can <laughs> you know it's like i sometimes like <laughs> bass playing is like i don't know to get it's like a weird it's like anything that someone gets really into except bass playing is this thing that people sort of the stigma for bass playing is that it is an afterthought and it's this like you know sort of like baby huey to the guitar which uh i also like that kind of playing but I was surprised when I started when we got into rehearsals with those guys that they that it was I guess not surprised because they always sound good live. But it was like they have as much, um, you know, pride in and in, in what they do and they treat their music fairly seriously, at least in rehearsal. And then uh, and, and that was a really cool environment. And for singing, too, I actually feel bad because I was singing with Patrick a bunch and Patrick's harmony stuff is a lot more comp complex and rhythm both rhythmically and what note choices i had I to imagine. notes i had to sing and then uh the reject stuff is more um i don't want to say typical and, and but is more like you know there were one two three four five singers at any given time all singing harmony and that was like because i had to do it um i i learned it you know as 
to as quickly as I could. And I did so much of it this year with them that I kind of wish it's more comfortable for me now. So I wish I could kind of like go back and redo both the, even the new again stuff. We were doing some, some singing on stage and on the record, but, um, you know, that it was challenging and they would also have me play like synth bass and guitar and stuff, which I totally had to fake the first few times really badly and you know learn those things synth bass is key keyboard keyboard bass keyboard midi bass you know no nope. playing the bass line on a keyboard so wouldn't you just say bass that <laughs> i mean yeah but it's it's like you know there are tunes when i'm playing bass on one section and then key bass on another section it's it's basically playing the piano which it sounds very rush <laughs> it's, it's super rushy but for them it it, it really works <laughs> but yeah i, I was re- man the last couple of years have been so fun and such a like fortunate thing for me to have you know friends of mine want to make me a part of their music even in just like the you know patrick recorded everything on his record and and the rejects had the record done because i was out with patrick but like you know, to have them want me to be around was was really great, and to be and to get to know people that I knew just as friends up until that point, and then work on music with them, um, you know, was a really really deep and nice thing. It, it deepened all the friendships, and uh, I've been really lucky. So Matt proving yet again that you can be in any kind of band and be a fan of all different kinds of music. He, They're on tour with the All-American Rejects, and he's like, oh, yeah, Bella Flex playing? I'm going to go see that. <laughs> he's just, I don't know, people who are jazz fans mystify me. It's like if you're a fan of uh, Frank Zappa. You know, it's like you're a fan of music, regardless. <laughs> Bella Fleck is pretty awesome to see, though. If is you've never really? seen him live before, no? he's probably one of the best banjo players alive. Oh, wow. For sure. Are you still playing? Yeah, I still play. Oh, but, do you take lessons? Uh, I do this. Yeah, I have like a video DVD thing I do. Brad, did you ever try banjo at all? Yes, I have. It's and... frustrating. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult instrument, especially gotta, coming from guitar. It's very difficult. To really to do it right, obviously, you have to get the right hand going. Yeah. And I've, I don't know, I can't do it. I go like this. <laughs> you can play banjo. You can strum a banjo and still like have a great time with it. And mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to play it to chord. Is it like mandolin? Is mandolin a pain in the ass too? Uh, no, mandolin is because banjo. What's the tuning? It's not typical. It's like um, it's like a. But it's not like a guitar tuning. Whereas like no, mandolin, no, no, it's like an open tuning. Yeah, like mandolin is like an upside down guitar. Like oh, it's, really? the chords are once you know what the strings are, you can figure out all the guitar chords. Oh, okay. Kind of like a ukulele, but but it's easier for me because all of the United Nations songs are in open D tuning. So I'm used to, I'm gotten really used to open tunings to the point where like, uh, I was with Jeff last night and he was borrowing my guitar for something and he was like tuning it up and I was playing it and I was like, what tuning is this? And he's like, E. <laughs> I was like, oh, these guys, and I played a G chord and I was like, oh yeah, this is E. I'm like, I haven't played guitar in regular tuning in so long. Well, my whole, that's what I, I used to play open G in the goops, like only. Yeah. And like anytime I would sit, and every time we would get sit down to write, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try standard tuning to like just try to get away from this because every, I don't want everything to sound the same. And I just, it wasn't as innovative for me for whatever reason. Innovation is key. This is why I play drums. Just hit it. <laughs>
Did it break? No, then you hit it correctly. <laughs> uh, if you did going off track, go on to Facebook, facebook.com slash going off track. Leave a comment. We've gotten some uh, lovely messages from folks, which is very nice. If you want to go to our website and click this magical donate button, some of you have. Thank you so very much. It keeps us up and running. We'd run without the dough. This is just fun for us. But still, it's nice. Um, also, we're almost finished. If you don't into our Kickstarter, some of you haven't sent me your address. Please do so I could send you your fun swag, and then I can send off that to people who've donated. We want to keep it in order, folks. Uh, next week, more going off trackness. Maybe we can put an echo on it, and I'll sound more DJ. Absolutely. Yeah!